Thank you for visiting Crosslink Community Church. We are located in Terre Haute, Indiana. For more information, please visit us online at cocchurch.com. Let's listen to one of our Sunday morning messages. Encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus when he said, What shall I do, Lord? And, and it's the same question that maybe the Philippian jailer asked when he asked, what do I do to be saved? You know, when you come into contact with God in such a way that your, your heart is moved and you realize, I'm not dealing with a normal person like I'm used to dealing with people. This is a different relationship when you encounter God, when you, when you come face to face with Jesus and you understand that he is the Savior and he is the Lord and he has died for you and he... He has gone to the wall for you. You are forgiven. I am forgiven because of what Jesus did on the cross. You're prompted to start to think about what does this mean for me personally? What kind of questions do I ask? You know, what we, we might believe in the deity. We, we, I mean, we, hopefully we do. I hope you do. And we, we believe in the salvation of Jesus. And we might acknowledge that we are sinners before God. But that does not alone make us Christians. At some point, you have to make a personal response to Christ. We have got to commit to him as Lord and as our Savior. Jesus never tried to ha- hide the fact that there were two things going on. Whenever you talk to Jesus, you, you, always, um, you always had an offer, but along with the offer was a demand. There, there were two parts <clears throat> to Jesus. There was an offer, but there was also a demand. The demand was total. The offer was free, but they didn't come separated from one another. They came as a package deal. He offered men salvation, but he demanded of them submission. He offered salvation, but he demanded submission. And there's that word again, submission. And men, this time, we're not applying that to ladies. We're applying that to all of us. And we're saying that Jesus says he wants us to submit. When you come face to face with Jesus, there is an offer and there is a demand. There's an offer to be saved, and there's also a demand that you would submit and that you would commit your life to him. Luke tells us about three men who encountered Jesus and either basically made application to follow him or were invited to follow him. And at the end of it, uh, those three men leave not having measured up to what it was that Jesus was looking for. In fact, you know, you would say that they kind of somewhat failed the test that Jesus had for them, in particular, the rich young ruler who, who thought that he you know had done an awful lot of good things and at the end of the discussion with Jesus he walks away from Jesus and he is saddened and he's, he, he walks away with his wealth intact he has everything that he started with in his discussion with Jesus the problem is he does not have joy he does not have uh, the grace that Jesus offered to him and he does not have the promise of eternal life and so it's a problem for this guy Jesus was good at drawing a crowd in fact, Jesus was awesome at drawing a crowd. The interesting thing is that I don't think Jesus ever set out to draw a crowd. I don't think it was in Jesus' mind. I want to go get a big crowd of people and talk to him today. He's, he's the only preacher I know who doesn't like big crowds. I've never met a preacher that didn't like a big crowd. I like big crowds. I like to know I'm not talking to four walls. I like to know that there's somebody listening. But you know what? It didn't seem to bother Jesus, and it didn't seem to, to be all that big a deal to Jesus, but somehow these people showed up and were following him around and wanted to hear what he had to say. And on this occasion, people were following Jesus, and they were shouting their allegiances, and they were letting him know that they thought he was Mr. Everything, and they had all these slogans. But Jesus knew how shallow all of it was. And he knew how superficial was their allegiance 
So he turned to him and he told him a parable. And it was an interesting kind of parable for him. It was one that he, I mean, he did parables different ways. But uh, this particular parable, he started by asking a question. He asks this rhetorical question, and that's really the parable. He just is kind of throwing it out there to see where it kind of lands on people. He says, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. I'm just going to apologize to you up front. I can tell inside of five minutes that my throat's going to give me trouble this morning. I'm sorry about that. The landscape of Christianity is littered with half-built towers. You know, when you drive... Every now and then, the staff and I will get, we, we, there's a little restaurant in Bloomington we really like to go to. It's called the Irish Lion. I highly recommend it. It's a little Irish pub, and you can get the best prime rib sandwich in the world in this little place. And, uh, you know, sometimes we just feel the Spirit of God moving us to Bloomington to go have one of those sandwiches. So um, on the way, there's a house that's been uh, started. Uh, if you drive to Bloomington very often, you know, probably I can see head shaking. You know what house I'm talking about. There's a house on the way to Bloomington, sits up on a hill. It's a big house. And they started it, and it never got finished. And I've been in town, I've been in Terre Haute since 92. I can't remember the first time I ever saw that house, but I've been driving by that house. I know I've been driving by that house for 10 years. Am I right? Somebody sees it? No, more, at least. And every time I drive by that house, I think about this particular passage of Scripture. I don't know the details. I don't know that they ran out of money. I'm assuming that whoever started to build that house ran into trouble and, and couldn't finish it. I, I mean, I know this. I, know, I don't even know who owns it. I don't know anything about that house or the people that started it. I pray for those people every time I drive by that house. That house disturbs me. But Christianity is littered with people who started to build and didn't count all the costs and got halfway through it and said, you know what, I, I can't do it. One of the greatest tragedies in the church occurs when somebody undertakes to follow Jesus and doesn't consider the cost. This is why I caution you, those of you who have small kids, when they're talking to you about becoming Christians, um, I'm not saying that, that little kids can't become Christians. That's not what I'm saying at all. I became a Christian when I was 10 years old. I knew exactly what I was doing. I mean, I marched down the aisle with purpose. I, I'm not saying I knew it all, but I, I understood the price that had been paid for me, what was expected of me. I understood that, you know, this was a commitment. I understood this was a life thing. I, I, I mean, as much as a little 10-year-old, I was immature in a lot of ways, but when it came to the whole Jesus thing, I got that pretty good. For a 10-year-old, I got that pretty good. But when we talk to people about coming to Christ, I, and I would lump myself in with this, I don't know that I have always done the best job of, let me put it this way, in my zeal to win people to Christ, I think it's possible that there have been times that I have not ensured that they had fully counted the cost. In some parts of Africa, before they baptize someone, they ask them a question, and if you don't answer affirmatively to this question, you don't get baptized. They will look at you and they will say, are you willing to die for Jesus? And if you can't say that you're willing to die for Jesus, they don't baptize you. That's how they 
question whether or not you have fully counted the cost because there are parts of Africa that if you believe in Jesus, you will die. I was going to read it to you, and I, I decided not to because, I, A, I didn't have permission, and I didn't know how much leeway I had, but I had, had a, uh, I got another email that was about uh, uh, some friends of mine who had a son who'd gone to China, and it, they'd written back and talked about some of the things that are going on in China, and you can die, and you can go to prison. What, what they call it um, something like re-education by incarceration or something like that. That's what they call it. Reformation, you know, re-education. They'll put you in prison because you're a believer in Jesus. And they, they talked about how, you know, they had to, they would go to some of these churches where these college students were meeting, and they, they would go into restaurants, they would go in the front door, but they'd slip out the back door. They said it was like something out of a movie. And we don't, we're in America. We, no, no, one, no one has a gun to our head and says, if you believe in Jesus, I'm going to pull the trigger. But there are places in the world where that's a reality. And, and you know, sometimes we, I mean, we come to church and we hear stories about Jesus and we sing songs about Jesus and let's just put it down where we can all get a hold of it. It's pretty easy to be a follower of Jesus in America. I mean, we, we like to talk like we go through persecution. You know, I went to work and they made fun of me because I had a fish on my stationery or I had, you know, I had a lapel pin, I had a fish and they were laughing and I was persecuted. That's not persecution. That's not persecution. When they put you in jail and they break your fingers, <laughs> when they put a gun to your head and pull the trigger, when they hold you up and watch and make you watch a family that you love get murdered because they believe in Jesus that is persecution and before we come to Christ and before we say yeah I'll follow you anywhere I'll do whatever I, you know we sing songs I'll go where you want me to go dear Lord I'll do what you want me to do really because in our country it's it's easy Oftentimes in America, we discover that what has happened is that we have lightly coded ourselves in Christianity. And if the question ever got put to us, renounce Jesus or die. Imagine. You're standing there before some guy, he's got a gun in his hand, and he says, you renounce Jesus or be prepared to meet him right now. There, 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 I just think that there's a lot of people that would say, well, let me rethink that. <laughs> You know, I'm not sure. Uh, you know, when you put it like that, I'm afraid that most of us, especially in this country, and I lump myself into this, okay? Understand, I'm not pointing a finger at you. Um, I lump myself into this. We have become soft. We are involved, but not overly so. We live respectable lives, but not uncomfortable ones. Our faith looks like a big soft cushion most of the time that we use to keep uncomfortable things away from us. When life gets unpleasant, we kind of whip our faith out and hope it'll get us through. And when it seems like our faith isn't getting us through, then we want to shake a fist at God and somehow it's his fault. The moment life becomes hard or the moment it is inconvenient for us, it seems like we get so ready to bail. It's no wonder that sometimes the largest complaint or the largest accusation to us about us from people who don't go to church 
is that we are hypocrites. Because really, we are. Jesus never lowered his standards. He, he never modified his conditions to make his success rate go up. He didn't, he didn't make it easier so that he could claim to have more followers. That's an American thing, I think. It's not a Jesus thing. And I would say, again, I would say that there are times I've been tempted to do that. As a pastor, I've probably been tempted to do that. I don't say that to my credit. I say it to my shame. He asked his first disciples, and he's asked every disciple since then, for unbending, unswerving allegiance to him. He he doesn't apologize for it. And he says, nothing less will do. Listen to Mark chapter 8. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Verse 38, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. At its simplest, the invitation from Jesus was an invitation to follow me. He asked men and women to follow, to He asked them for their allegiance. He asked them to be obedient to him, to learn from him, to identify with his cause. Now, it's important that you understand that if there is an invitation for a following, that before you can follow, you have to forsake. Before there's a following, there has to be a forsaking. You don't just follow somebody. If you're going to follow somebody, um, I mean, we see that, you know, when when the, the Bible talks about people who get married they they're going to go be with their spouse but they're going to leave their family there's this you know this idea of leaving and cleaving it's this anytime you follow i mean the disciples that followed jesus left something behind to do that there was a forsaking that went on there to follow jesus is to renounce other lesser allegiances to follow jesus means that other things that you might have been loyal to you're not loyal to anymore You have a new loyalty. You have a higher calling, a bigger loyalty. Peter and Andrew, when they followed Jesus, left their nets behind, their livelihood, their work. They left it behind. James and John left their dad Zebedee and some hired servants and all the fishing equipment and the business and the whole deal and followed Jesus. There was a forsaking of something. Today, following Jesus has come to mean something different. Usually doesn't mean uh, a forsaking of family or a forsaking of a business or a, you know, a career or something like that. Could mean that for you. Could, I'm not saying it, it wouldn't or it couldn't, but it could. But we're typically not asked to leave our homes or, or our families to follow Jesus. Instead, today, following Jesus implies an inner surrender. It, it implies this idea of, of vacating the throne of our heart. Because we, I mean, again, and I don't mean to bang on America, but I'm going to because it makes us soft. We, we, in America, are accustomed to sitting on our own throne in our own heart. And so Jesus comes along and says, hey, I want, I want to know that if you're going to follow me, 
that you will vacate that throne and that you will put all other loyalties aside, that you will put the loyalties of your family, of your business, of your career, you know, your whatever thing that you would put before me, I want to know that you're going to put that secondary to me. So what is involved then in following Jesus? This is a... I mean, you know, in some ways, following Jesus to talk about it is so simple. You could say it as simply as it's to leave everything behind and just just follow him, to just do what he says to do. I mean, it could be that simple. But, you know, if you want to really get technical, there's several parts to it. And I'm probably not going to get all of them today, but I want to talk about a couple. Uh, one, there is a renunciation of sin. It's what we know as repentance. It is the first part of confession or of conversion. It's 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 to literally repent means to to turn and go the other way think of a person walking down the street and they turn on their heels and they walk the other direction that's a picture that's a word picture of repentance it's an inward change of mind and attitude towards sin and that change of mind or attitude leads to a change in behavior so there's a renunciation of sin there's also a renunciation of self not only do we leave sin behind but we leave the the whole idea of self will behind that's sometimes that's harder than renouncing re- renouncing sin isn't it to to you know renounce yourself to to you know to to literally get over yourself i mean that's really what jesus says get over yourself and follow me and yet we have a difficult time i do getting over ourselves The principle of self-will is something that self-will is something that lies at the very root of sin. To follow Jesus is to surrender the very rights of your own life. Luke nine twenty three. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. It's a three-part process. This verse kind of lays out three parts. First of all, deny yourself. It's the same word that is uh, used for Peter's denial of Jesus in the courtyard when he's in the high priest's palace uh, courtyard. That, that word denial, deny yourself. It's about denying myself to myself. It says no to self, and it says yes to Christ. Step two is to take up your cross. Now, if you lived in the time of Jesus and you were to be walking down the street and you saw somebody who had a cross that they were carrying or the cross beam or whatever, I mean, they recognized what it was, um, however they did it. Typically, it was just a beam. It wasn't the whole cross. But if you saw somebody carrying this thing through the street, you knew one thing about that person. They had been sentenced to an execution and they were on their way they were really in their final day and probably in their final hours as they carried their cross to the place where they would be crucified and would die and and, you know i think sometimes it's easy for us to think that that crucifixion wasn't all that uh popular or or a you know wasn't all that a common thing crucifixion was a very common thing in fact there were guys that's just what their job was they just they went to work in the morning and they crucified people that was their job you know jesus when they crucified jesus for the guys that did that wasn't anything special about jesus he was just another guy he was just another one of the ones that we're going to crucify we do him we'll do the next one we'll do the next one wasn't anything special about jesus to the people who did that crucifixion happened all the time so when jesus said take up your cross and follow me when they heard take up your cross that's like him saying to us go to your electric chair 
go to the death chamber. Go to the guy that has the syringe with the stuff that will put you to sleep forever. I mean, that's really what Jesus was saying. Are you willing to die for me? Are you willing to take up your cross for me? It would have been revolting to the audience to to whom, to whom, to which? It would have been revolting to the people he was talking to. Let's say it that way. Paul said something similar in Galatians. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. And then Luke, in recounting uh, Jesus' invitation, uses the word daily. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Meaning that every day we die to ourselves, and every day we take up a cross and we follow Jesus. How hard is that? How hard is that for you? It's, it's, it seems impossible to me some days to die to myself. It's this constant battle that rages in the hearts of all of us to get off the throne of our heart and to let him have it, to say, God, not my will, but your will be done. And Jesus, what you want to happen in my world is what I want to happen in my world. It's a daily, it's a fight, it's a struggle. Being a Christian is the hardest thing I've ever tried to do in my life. Because it involves getting me off the throne and putting him on the throne. And you know what? If I'm totally honest, and if you are too, we like being there. We like being there. And yet he says, take up your cross daily and follow me. The third step is follow me. Another way Jesus would have put it is to say to lose your life. For whoever wants to save his life, this is Matthew chapter 16, whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. We talk about losing our life. We aren't talking about physically losing our life. We really aren't even talking about our soul so much at this point. What we're talking about is our psyche, that part of us that has will, that part of us that makes decisions, that part of us that that chooses what will happen. It's, it's losing that part of ourself. It's the part that, that thinks and feels. The man who decides to follow Christ then loses himself in pursuit of Jesus. It means that his will is surrendered to God's will. Very, very difficult. So in order to follow Christ, we have to deny ourselves, we have to crucify ourselves, we have to lose ourselves. I think that a lot of us today, and I think most people probably, you know, would rather be able to have a faith where we can just confess Christ and and have salvation but we you know the idea of the second part of that you know making him lord that's a lot harder i mean i'm all for being saved it's that lord part that gets tough for me sometimes i, I josh mcdowell has said it i don't know it's it's a comment's been batted around the church for years but the old slogan that that everybody wants a savior nobody wants a lord But it's clear as you look at the early church that the earliest formations of creeds contained the words, Jesus is Lord. That was from the very beginning. That that kind of terminology and those kind of words were used in the very beginning creeds of the very early formational stages of the church. Jesus is Lord. It's important to note that this is at a time when Rome was pressing its citizens to say, Caesar is Lord. 
I mean, that was, you, you were expected to say that, and if you didn't, uh, Rome was going to have a problem with you. You better be willing to say Jesus, uh, Caesar is Lord. And yet Christians were unflinching in their uh, stand that no, Jesus is Lord. And many Christians lost their life as a result. Making Jesus Lord is to bring every area of our life under his authority and his control. This, this includes our career. God has a purpose and plan for our life and our job is to discover what that is and and to do that as well as we can. It may be different than what your parents had planned. What God has for you may be different than what you had planned when you started out. Regardless of what you do for a living, it's clear that God calls every Christian to some kind of ministry to serve other people for the sake of Christ. No Christian can live for himself. Jesus as Lord includes our marriage. Marriage was God's idea. And it's not just physical or emotional or intellectual or social. It is also spiritual. He's Lord over our money. Jesus often spoke about money and the dangers of riches. And, and uh, his disciples, you know, he told them to give it all away. No doubt some of them, that's exactly what he meant when he said give it all away. I, for most of us today, I don't know that, that he's telling us all to give all of our money away. He could be telling some of us that. I've, I've heard some people in the last month talk and they definitely heard Jesus say give it all away and that's what they've done I was reading this morning in my office uh, about Mother Teresa and how in 1979 she won the Nobel Peace Prize I don't know what, how much money comes with the Nobel Peace Prize but I'm assuming it's make you a, a wealthy person and it said she invested all that money in the work of ministry in Calcutta that she won lots of cash prizes for her humanitarian efforts and that she didn't keep any of that money. It all went to be fund the work that she did. I mean, she was called to give it all away. And maybe God's calling you to do that too. I don't know. But I think for most of us, it's, 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 a, you know, it's more summed up in the old cliche that, that it's, it's, it's okay to own things, but you don't want things to own you. And I think that for a lot of us, things own us. That's the problem. I had, I've told you the story before, but I had a good friend in Bible college. I, this was back in the day when, when guys wore suspenders, not because we needed our pants held up, but because it looked cool, you know. It's also the, year, the era of the big hair, and boy, did I go for that. So I went to Barry, and I said, hey, you know, you, you have these really cool, I'm almost ashamed to tell you this, you have these really cool pink and gray suspenders that I've been seeing you wear. Doesn't that, don't they sound sharp? Pink and gray. Yeah think i could borrow those and he goes and gets in his closet and he says here you go you can have those i said no barry i, I don't want to keep them i just wanted to borrow them he said no you go ahead and keep those because if if i don't give those to you then I, I then they own me and i don't want those to own me so you just keep them that was the first time i'd ever had that idea introduced to me before and he lived his life that way he didn't cling to anything. I mean, he truly understood what it was to have things and not let things have him. Most of us don't ever get to that place. It's a, it's a struggle for me. I venture to say it's probably a struggle for you. You probably have things that if I said, hey, would you be willing to give that to somebody, you'd say, oh, do I have to? I mean, let's be honest. A lot of the times our stuff has us. The real, the real grace and art form of living a christian life is to get to a place where what you have you have and it doesn't have you 
Jesus is Lord over our time. These days, time is every man's problem, isn't it? That's really what we struggle with more than anything. More than money almost sometimes is time. You know, what, where am I going to find the time? I was talking to Myra yesterday, and she said, I'm running out of time. I had a good friend of mine, you know, not long ago, was kind of going over their schedule, and they were telling me, I've got to do this, and I've got to be here, and this, and you've got to do this. And every day was filled with stuff. Our schedules are so full, all of us, really. And we, we, what we do with our time is we treat our time a lot the way we treat, we treat God with our time, the way we treat God with our money, which is we don't give God first, we do what we need to do with our money, and then we, if there's anything left over, then we give that to God. We do the same thing with our time. Instead of blocking off time and saying, here, God, this is yours, we live our week, and if there's anything left over, and generally there's not, we say, well, you know, God, I wish I, wish I could pray more. You know, I wish I could do a quiet time, or I wish I had time to go to church, but I just don't have time. Saying Jesus is Lord means that we have reprioritized. It means that we have shuffled things so that those things line up to be more into his perspective and how he would have us do it than how we think it should be done. And especially the money thing, I find when I talk to people, you know, and I think about my own life and money, it's hard. It's hard to reorganize and think about it the way God would have us think about it. Not only are we called to follow Christ, we're called to confess Christ. And I'm almost done. We're, we're called not only to follow him privately, but we're, we're called to confess him publicly. Listen to Mark chapter 8 again. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, and those words are important, I'm going to come back to those in just a minute. Adulterous and sinful generation. The Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes into his Father's glory with the holy angels. Matthew chapter 10, whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. Now it's interesting because the fact that Jesus told us not to be ashamed of him pretty much tips his hand and lets us know that he knew that we probably would be tempted to be ashamed of him. He kind of was banking on it. That's why Mark added in this adulterous and sinful generation. Jesus knew, I think, that his, not, I'm pretty sure Jesus knew that, that his church would be a minority movement, that there would be great pressure put on the church. He knew that there would be great pressure put on you and me. He knew that we would be pressured every day to sell out to, to live a, a cheapened life, to not hold fast to the commitment that we've made. He knew that, that it would be a lot easier for us sometimes to just look the other way or act like we didn't hear or not see that so that we don't have to do it. He knew that those temptations would be there. The open confession of Christ can't be sidestepped. and You can't dance around it. Paul made it a condition of salvation Romans chapter 10 the word of faith we are proclaiming that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead you will be saved for it is with your heart that you believe and are justified what does justified mean 
just as if I'd never sinned. It is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. And let me stop right here real quick and just make sure I, I plug this part in. Um, part of confession, I mean, we have you come forward, and I, I realize that there are a lot of churches that don't even do that anymore. In fact, I was listening to a preacher just this morning, and he was kind of making fun of churches that still have people come forward because I don't know if you know it or not, it's not cool to do that anymore. It's not cool to have people come forward because we're putting pressure on them and it's hard for people to stand in front of people and tell them that they believe in Jesus. My thing is, if you can't stand in front of this group and tell this group that you believe in Jesus, you'll never do it to the world. And so, you know, it's kind of, I'm, I'm a, I would like to think I'm a fairly progressive thinking guy and forward thinker, but it's just one of those things that I've kind of demanded and held on to a little bit. I want you coming forward because I want you to have to profess publicly and confess Christ now I could be wrong about that but I just think that that ought to happen I think if you can't do it here you'll never do it for the world and so that's part of the confession but another part of the confession is the baptism that is a very public thing that's and we we've got some we need to show you we've got three or four probably that we need to to show you uh we're trying to get those ready but I want you know whenever we get ready to baptize people I ask the question and we don't you know we won't if we don't have permission we've done a couple and I haven't had permission to show them they just they were so private the people were so shy they said no I just I can't let you show that and I'm like okay I respect that but but we really want to show the baptisms because it's a part of the confession it's it's an outward demonstration of something that's happened inwardly in your heart you never physically look more like Jesus. I tell people this all the time when I'm talking to them about being baptized. You never physically look more like Jesus than the day you get baptized. Because in that baptistry, you stand there dying to yourself. You're, you're a dead man. You're going to die, which is exactly what Jesus did. What do you do with a dead person? You bury a dead person. And then they are raised to walk in the newness of life. When they come up out of that water, they look like Jesus. You are raised to walk in the newness of life. There's a resurrection that happens. I think God knew exactly what he was doing when he set out this word picture, this visual image of us for baptism. I was talking to my roommate one time. I said, Kent, what is it with baptism? Because in Bible college, that's one of the things we debated and fought over all the time was, do you have to be baptized? And I'm like, Kent, why, why did God set this thing up he said Brett I don't know he said for one thing I think it was one little act that kind of took us away from God that, you know in the garden and he said is it possible that that there's one little act that kind of brings us back but beyond that it's this word picture that's there of of death burial and resurrection and you know we we, we talk when I talk about baptism I'm not talking about being sprinkled or anything like that and if that's your tradition and that's what you came out of that's fine I just want you to understand that when the Bible talks about baptism it it's pretty clear that we're talking about an immersion. The word means wash, to dip or to dunk, to submerge. And, and you don't get the word picture of death, burial, and resurrection in a sprinkling. You only get that when you, when you do what we see as what we call a, a New Testament baptism, immersion. And so, you know, it's, Jesus said, Jesus was baptized, first of all, and he said, you need to be baptizing disciples. One of the last things he said before he left the planet. I've heard people say, well, I believe in Jesus and I'm a good person, doesn't that save me? Here's what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches you need to repent. That means to die to yourself. 
and you need to confess. That is to make a public confession of faith, and that confession, we believe, needs to include baptism. That confession will also include a daily living of life in an effort to glorify Christ. It may be silent some days, but there are days that people, trust me on this, trust me on this, people are watching you. They're watching you. What you say non-verbally speaks way louder than what you're saying verbally most of the time. People are watching how you live your life. It means you'll strive to be humble and honest. It means that you'll find a church, you'll get active. It means that you'll live in community and fellowship with other believers. It means that you'll work to win your friends and the world to Christ by an exemplary testimony and, and life. Confession is what we do with our mouth, but we are confessing, confessing verbally and non-verbally every day. I don't know if you've ever heard this before, but St. Francis of Assisi was fond of saying, preach the gospel at all times, use words if necessary. That's great. Preach the gospel at all times, use words if necessary. Most of us think that we use words, and if we have to, we'll live it out. Now, briefly, why would we make Jesus Lord? I want to give you some incentives. And we're done. What, what incentive do we have to make Jesus Lord? First of all, the incentive is for our own sake. Listen to this. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for me and the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? It's a paradox of the teachings of Jesus. That if we lose our, ourselves in following him, we actually find ourselves, which is interesting. True self-denial is true self-discovery. To live for others, or to live for ourselves, really becomes an insanity. And if you live your life totally for yourself, you may never admit this to anybody else, but I can tell you this. If you live your life completely for yourself and you're totally, totally honest, you're probably a miserable person. You're probably not happy. But living for God and other people, in that we find wisdom and in that we find life. With Jesus, you don't just find yourself unless you're willing to lose yourself in him. The more you get lost, the more you're found. It's just one of those strange things. Second incentive is for the sake of others. Mark uses the expression, for the sake of the gospel. What does that mean? It means for the sake of telling other people who Jesus is. It's one of the reasons that you would come to Christ. For the sake of the gospel. You, you give, you, 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 you make Jesus Lord for the sake of the gospel so that other people can know who he is. I'm going to skip some stuff there. Number three, incentive for Christ's sake. You follow for Christ's sake. Listen to this. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. You know, when we're asked to do something, and I was asked to do something this week, and I did it, and I did it purely because of the person who was asking me to do it. It was something that I normally wouldn't do, but I did it purely because of the person who was asking me to do it. I felt indebted to them. I felt like it was something that, that I owed them or that I should do, and so I did it because, uh, and it wasn't a bad thing, it was, just, it was just something that normally I probably wouldn't be all that inclined to do. It's interesting, when someone asks you to do something, one of the things that goes through your mind, whether you consciously know this or not, is why would I do this for them? Do I really want to do this for them? Well, a lot of what we do, we do based on uh, the people who are asking us. That's why 
uh, Christ's appeal to deny ourselves is so persuasive. He asks us to deny ourselves and to follow for his own sake. You may be tempted to say that the, the, the command to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow Jesus is a little harsh. Uh, my response to that would be that Jesus asks no more than he gave. He's not asking any more of you and me than he was willing to give himself. Whatever it costs us, it costs him more. Just keep telling yourself that. Whatever it costs us, it costs him more. If you want to live a, an easy life and you want to live a life that, that is self-indulgent and is all about you, then if I were you, I would stay as far away from Jesus as I could get. Because he will mess that world up. If you, if you want to live a self-indulgent, self-centered, self-willed life, then by all means, don't ever come to Jesus. Because he will ruin that life. But if you want a life that is marked with purpose, if you want to know the joy of serving, if you want to know the joy of making life about something other than you, if you want a life of adventure, if you want an opportunity to both serve God and man, if you want a life that expresses your overwhelming gratitude to God for what he's done for you, then I would invite you to confess him, to make him Savior and Lord, both, not just one or the other. I would invite you to do it today, and I would invite you to do it without hesitation. Now, most of us in the room are believers, and, and we've already made public confessions of faith. But if you, and you may believe that Jesus died on the cross, and you may believe that he's real and he rose from the dead and all that stuff, but there has got to be a public confessing of your faith. And if you've never done that, you have an opportunity today to do that. To respond to the call of Jesus when he says, come follow me. Take up your cross daily and follow me. And we're going to sing in just a moment. And at the end of that, uh, while we're singing, if you've never given your life to Christ, I would invite you to come forward and publicly confess, I believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Let's pray together. Father, this series has been good for us because we've just kind of returned to some very basic things. And uh, following Jesus, we can say it, and it kind of rolls off the tongue, but really, when you really talk about following Jesus, that is, it's hard because he did not have a home. And he really did not know where his next meal was coming from. And he just really did live his life by faith, and, and he was in such communion with God. He was completely dependent on God. And I mean, while that's a beautiful example for us, Father, that is also a scary thing because we just have a hard time with some of that. Lord, I pray that as we've considered what it is to follow Jesus this morning, that you would come behind our effort now because our effort by itself is really worthless. We can't do it without you. Father, I think I say for pretty much everybody in the room this morning, we love you with a big love. It's a huge love. We love you. There's no question about that. But our flesh is weak. We're failures, all of us. We don't get it right so much of the time. And so, Father, we just confess right now that we need you.
can't make it without you. We can't do life without you. Any good thing that is seen in us is coming from you. We recognize it, confess it to you. Father, take what we offer, make it so much more than what we offer. Help us to live this life of commitment that we want to live. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for visiting. We hope you've been encouraged. Please feel free to visit us online at clcchurch.com.